Welcome to Queering Left, a podcast from Crossroads Fund. I'm Emmanuel Garcia. And I'm Jean Crocker. And we are the hosts of Queering Left. Crossroads Fund is a public foundation in Chicago. We provide funding to community organizations, activists, and movements who are working for racial, social, and economic justice. For more information, please visit our website, crossroadsfund.org. Our guests on this episode of Queering Left are longtime activists Mary Patton and Jeff Edwards, both of who have years of experience in movements for racial, social, and economic justice. Our focus with them for today will be their organizing work with ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Mary Patton is a visual artist and a professor at the Art Institute of Chicago. She is currently involved with the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial Project. Mary's activism goes back decades and includes work in the solidarity with South Africa, Puerto Rico, Black liberation, and other anti-imperialist struggles. As a result of an anti-apartheid direct action at Kennedy Airport in 1981, Mary served one year in Rikers Island Jail in New York. Jeff Edwards is a staff organizer at UIC United Faculty. Jeff began his activist work in Minneapolis, where he too was involved with an anti-imperialist struggles, such as ending U.S. intervention in Central America during the 1980s. He began working on AIDS activism while still in Minneapolis and then moved to Chicago in 1986. ACT UP Chicago, like many chapters around the country, was formed in 1987. It emerged in Chicago from other AIDS activist work like Chicago for AIDS Rights and Dagmar. Mary Patton was one of the founders of ACT UP Chicago and she and Jeff met in ACT UP Chicago. They will discuss how they came to AIDS activism and some of the ways that AIDS activism was informed by their early solidarity work. I'm Mary Patton. Um, I'm an artist and I, uh, a longtime teacher. I teach at the Art Institute of Chicago and uh, a longtime political activist. And I'm Jeff Edwards. I'm a staff organizer for UIC United Faculty. It's the union that represents the faculty at UIC. And I was a member of ACT UP from the late 80s to mid 90s when we folded, I think. Um, and yeah, a longtime activist on a number of different issues. Um, so I wanted to just kind of begin with um, maybe for you to share, uh, when did you uh, first start identifying as a queer activist? Did you start identifying as a queer activist? You know, it's sort of a <clears throat> complicated question um, because it's hard sometimes to fix dates because I think I identified much more as a lesbian activist and it's not about debating the it's not about problematic with the word queer at all but in terms of um gay liberation in quotes i was much more kind of involved with lesbian feminism that quickly folded into this particular kind of anti-imperialist um kind of lunatic leftist um orientation um that kind of that that actually meant that some of the lesbian feminists, socialist feminists we worked with characterized us 
as lesbians from the neck down because we had we didn't have a, a proper uh, lesbian feminist consciousness because we were too oriented to Marxism and anti-imperialism. But that's a whole other story. So that'll stop there. And, you know, I would say, you know, I've got a, a complicated relationship as well. In fact, in terms of coming in to act up, I don't think there was a sense of that there are queer activists. Uh, I think yeah. the concept of queer emerged in the context of ACT UP uh, in the face of you know, ongoing neglect by institutions of power or outright backlashing against queers. And so taking on the queer label is like, you think we're queer? Yes, yes, we are. Um, I think also at some point in time that got solidified because the more mainstream or gay politicos in the early 90s wanted to closet away AIDS and focus on marriage and military. So I think it was also in defiance of mainstream gay politics. But I also always felt ambivalent about it because I think it it has always implied whiteness and middle-classness and cisgendered male. Um, I think even from the beginning, you know, queer quickly turned into queer nation. And at the time that that happened, I was a little puzzled that um, the AIDS epidemic is continuing. We didn't have solutions. And suddenly people were taking the streets to do more expressive queer stuff. And I felt that it was coming at a time when AIDS was becoming increasingly racialized. It was obvious to more and more people that AIDS is affecting people of color. Our work in ACT UP was focusing on that. <clears throat> and suddenly ACT UP wasn't queer enough for some people. Uh, so I've had this ambivalence um, I've had that ambivalence um, all along. That's so interesting. Um, there's just a lot to, as they say, unpack there. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I guess because first of all, today you wouldn't, would you think or do you think that queer, the, 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 the kind of umbrella of queer is uh, primarily or mostly white? I do. That's interesting. I realize it's I not just that, yeah. but I just... It's, it's too easy to become that or too easy to be that. And I realize there are people doing great work that it's not that. Uh, but I think when you center queer, it starts to center gender, sexuality, shed of class and race. Um, hope that's not too sweeping for people. No, but no. I'm just talking about my own ambivalence. I called myself a queer activist, so I'm not saying that's a horrible thing. I'm just saying ambivalent about it. I think I feel like as a person who does identify as queer, I actually identify as queer because I think it encompasses race mm -hmm. and different types of politics that are outside of just like the mainstream, like gay and lesbian, yeah, um, yeah. Right, you I know, agree. dominant culture, well, if you will. And I do think, you know, as history moves, language moves as well. And, you know, it was sort of we, we did, we, you know, we're in ACT UP and beyond, we, you know, started re-embracing terms like dyke and faggot and, you know, sissies and, you know, bulldaggers and, you know, the things that were the most contemptuous, quote unquote, terms. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I, I think your point is a, a really interesting point. It makes me want to think about it even more. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you what uh, drew you to get involved in ACT UP. Like what was your like either personal connection to that work or how did you come into that work? I mean, I first became aware of AIDS in a, in a very, not just aware, I'm sorry, um, 
tangled up in it in terms of a personal relationship and a and a social understanding um, because one of the women I was in jail with between 1982 and 1983, her name was Angie Caceres, died of of AIDS just at the point at which people were no longer using the language of GRID, you know, gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome, and uh, and it was it, it, it that was hugely um, impactful for me because I got out before she did. She wrote me this letter. We we wrote a little bit. I would send her stamps, and she. Um, wrote to me and said, can you imagine I have this diagnosis and I'm now in the infirmary? And I knew at that point that was a death sentence, that I probably would not hear from her anymore. And that is indeed what happened. But there was there was kind of a little bit of a time gap between that. That was in 83. Wow. And when um, we, as I mentioned before, Jean and Ferdig and other people, we had this sort of small... I guess we call ourselves sort of an affinity group, dykes and gay men against Reagan, the right wing, repression, racism, any R, any bad R you want to add on to that. So there, so it's interesting how the gaps between when you become aware of something and when you mm-hmm. can mobilize around something coherent, you know. Yeah, I'd say that for me, my involvement began in a very personal way in terms of just fear fearing for my own life and those who I knew. I remember I was living in Minneapolis when the epidemic began and not really feeling very aware of it. Um, And there was a rally one summer, 85, 86, I can't remember exactly. Um, Some state legislators were there, the uh, publisher of a local gay paper, uh, Tim Campbell, who sort of, I guess the local Larry Kramer, who proclaimed, Everybody here tonight, at the end of the decade, you will either be dead or know somebody who's dead. And the, the audience was mostly people in their 20s and 30s. Um, and that was a big moment for me in terms of awareness of what was going on. And then, of course, a lot of anger about the ways in which the right wing and the whole, this whole Reagan era period uh, were making use of AIDS as a way to bash queer people um, and a real moment was in 86 when the Supreme Court had their decision, Hardwick versus Bowers, where they said there's no right to homosexual sex. I think that's the language they used. And in fact, the Chief Justice, in his separate opinion, actually linked homosexuality to AIDS. And so therefore, it can't, it shouldn't be legal. And that was, I think, really the the thing that lit things on fire. And I got involved uh, it must have been right after that in planning from Minneapolis to go to the March on Washington, which that year was called the March on Washington for Gay and Lesbian Rights, but it was really about AIDS. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was led by people with AIDS. Uh, the quilt was there. I was working on a documentary crew, and so sort of following the whole march um, and seeing just, you could see from the front back, people with AIDS in wheelchairs, and it's just... And to see the um, the quilt on display. Um, after that, we started doing some organizing there in Minneapolis. Minnesota Alliance Against AIDS, I think was the name. And shortly thereafter, I moved to Chicago and saw a sign for a meeting of this new group, uh, ACT UP, which was the merger of the group you two had been involved with, with some other folks. 
and that's how I found my way to uh, ACT UP Chicago. Uh, no Movement is purely about one issue, right? We're talking a little bit about intersectionality. How would you describe the ways in which ACT UP's organizing was intersectional? Like, can you share a story about how you saw the organizing work in ACT UP as being intersectional or how you understood intersectionality? Yeah, we. what I remember is that we did not have that language. I know that sounds like a contradiction with what I said before about say, 10 years earlier, having internalized some of those concepts and being taught by women of color, uh, mostly lesbians in, in New York. But we didn't, we didn't use that language. However, there, was, um, there were very few people of color who were involved as activists um, in the group. Uh, over time, we got to know particularly women um, of color who were, um, who had been diagnosed with HIV AIDS and were willing, took the risk to come out as such. Um, and they came from a, they came from a kind of different, um, sort of orientation as us. They came into the work as people who were directly affected and fighting for their lives um, not an activist kind of background. Of course, that's that's true of a lot of the people who joined ACT UP who had no activist experience at all. And because it was uh, it was a primarily white group, prim- primarily white, cisgendered male, um, there there were um, those you know some of the people who had been involved with Dagmar as well as some other people white people considered ourselves anti-racist and that it was our responsibility to struggle against racism in all its forms. And that, of course, meant very concrete things about who gets represented as, who do we imagine as people who are affected by AIDS. So from I remember one of the things we did is we made a, pretty early on, like at, for the 87 March, we made a banner that was the map of Africa with kind of targets on it. I I mean, I'm not sure how graphically great that was, like thinking about it now, but um, no, but the the point, the point was like, you know, who's, who's most at risk in in terms of of AIDS. And um, so, and then there was a people of color caucus that emerged out of ACT UP. It was small but I would say powerful. And um, there was a kind of alliance between what also emerged as the Women's Caucus in ACT UP. So so more than, rather than the language of intersectionality, I think that there was a commitment to anti-racism and that that was tied to a more structural analysis of, of the AIDS epidemic and the kinds of um, horrible, uh, uh, horrible reactions and positions and policies, you know, that weren't just vindictive, that were, you know, murderous, literally, um, by the government and by all kinds of, you know, powerful voices and in the culture. Um, I think that some of us were really pushing to look at, for example, a national health care agenda 
that was I don't think that was at first because at first it was a matter of just, just sort of fighting for sheer survival and and fighting against the worst kinds of um, I mean because people are talking about quarantine. I think it's worth saying that at, we didn't consider ACT UP to be a gay group. Um, and so we were organizing around an issue. And I think that that helps facilitate more of the intersectionality. I mean, most people were queer, uh, but we are organizing as AIDS activists. And um, I think that's important for people to know who maybe don't know about this movement. In fact, oftentimes the media would report gay activists are out on the streets and we're like, we're, we're AIDS activists. But they saw what they imagined were gay people and, and characterized that. But we were insistent uh, that we were just a group of people committed to end the AIDS crisis through direct action. Um, so I think that's important to note. Um, you know, I don't remember the word intersectionality being used, but I do think, in my experience, the Women's Caucus was really a powerful force in making sure that issues of gender, race, class were foregrounded in the work, built relationships with um, with women, uh, took the lead in our prison activism. Um, so I think the Women's Caucus was crucial in that work. The only thing I would just add, just just I think intersectionality, as everyone has said, didn't really exist as a we didn't speak of it that way. And I would I would just say it wasn't universally popular in ACT UP. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, because I, th I think that the language that we used was the language of solidarity. You know, I was, um, one of the ways that I got introduced to ACT UP was through a lot of the imagery that has, you know, kind of been come out through time, right, of that, those actions and the things that, um, the campaigns um, and I wanted to know that, you know, ACT UP is known for its powerful and controversial direct um, action tactics. Um, could you share a story of planning an action um, or what inspired the ideas for that action or for those tactics? The April 1990 actions for healthcare. I mean, it was the biggest thing we did. Yes. It took probably a year yeah. to organize. Yeah, um, it, centered, it centered women of color low-income health care. Uh, so it represented this, this intersect, what we didn't call them, but what we call now intersectional work. Right. And it, 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 it actually, it was so it was the outgrowth, the year that you're talking about the outgrowth of work with other chapters of ACT right. UP throughout the country that, that I think it was very important for us in Chicago and in LA, um, San Francisco to a certain extent, to build this um, national AIDS coalition to organize and win, I feel mm -hmm. for, act now, act now, yeah. act now. Um, uh, to, you know, together with New York, but to kind of claim a multifaceted national, uh, you know, and rural as well as urban, etc. So many, many chapters mm -hmm. um, were involved in building towards this. Action, the National Actions for Healthcare, and it, it was it. So it it had it represented all of the creativity and intelligence and joy and smarts of all those people at lots of different 
perspectives, and it also targeted the the AMA, the insurance industry, you know, pharmaceuticals, and the uh, public health care system. And the particular target, of course, was Cook County Hospital and the fact that although there was an AIDS ward, that there was that not... provided extraordinary care. Exactly. Yes. Um, yes, I was reminded to emphasize that recently. Um, but did not... Uh, said the county said they didn't have the capacity and the money to build a separate bathroom for women. So part of the ward was empty with these beds, uh, empty beds, and uh, women were not uh, being served in that way. And at a time when you could go into Cook County and there are some personnel there who didn't want to deal with you because you had AIDS. So they'd be in wards where they could be neglected. Right, right. And and Jeff is right. There were were some great doctors, medical people um, who were very... Um, were great advocate, wonderful advocates for people with AIDS and who we talked to and worked with. Um, so, so it was very much the county uh, administration that was the target. Mm-hmm. But we did a really imaginative action. The Women's Caucus and the People of Color Caucus created and led this action. And we dragged 15 old mattresses through the alleys in downtown how did we manage to do this? Because the police were on us in this demonstration. The people had already been arrested at that point, but somehow we did. I think they just didn't expect it, you know? They thought it was um, stagecraft yeah. because it had, it, we had uh, taken the mattresses and put, um, you know, fitted sheets on them that right. said, you know, right. women die faster. Right. Um, you know, healthcare for all. Sure. So the the mattresses had slogans on them, and then there were also mattresses which were stashed in convenient locations yeah. near yeah. the local. No, the it's final a really location. important point about um, how art can be the kind of Trojan horse in a way. The goal with the mattresses, which was very very clear, was to to create an AIDS ward in the street outside the county building. So we knew that the final location was the county building. Thus, the banner drop from the county building uh, balcony. And so everything, there were, there were, it was sort of a classic march through the loop with stops along the way and different humorous or, you know, die-ins or, or, or people dressed as doctors and doing street theater. And this went on for I don't know how many, how long it went on. Hours, it seemed like. Yeah, I mean, all um, morning and into the afternoon. Right, and the, right because uh, it was in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So then the culmination was this creation of the AIDS ward, and where we dragged out these mattresses and women lay down on them, and the people of color caucus surrounded um, the women, like with uh, banners, and the people and with songs. people with AIDS, yeah. and people with uh, uh, people of color. And they, um, uh, to sort of have a first line of defense against the police. And there was a weekend of things happening. I mean, people came from around the country. Um, we did a vigil at Cook County. That with, with a stage and many kinds of performances, mm-hmm. drag performances, humorous performances, right, right. less than humorous Not so humorous <laughs> meetings also. But that's another. Right. But the other really significant thing is that it was a couple of days later 
when the county opened that mm-hmm. part of the ward. So, like, I, it's it's very rare when I can identify in my experience mm-hmm. a kind of concrete victory, and which is not to say you know people were hurt, the police were brutal, a lot of people were arrested, um, you know. But which we planned for. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was supposed to happen. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, we you know we when we talk to um, groups. Uh, from other groups, you know, that we've talked to on this podcast, um, uh, they do talk a little bit of the uh, being inspired by some of the tactics of of ACT UP. And I'm curious, who inspired your tactics? Like, how did you, where did you, where did those come from? And how did you reinterpret them? Well, I, I do think we were queer activists um, and very much embraced a kind of campy sensibility that kind of went hand in hand with the reality that we were taking care of our comrades and mm-hmm. friends and lovers who were dying. So those things existed very uh, close in time. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of that was a kind of collective invention um, of the AIDS movement, of the AIDS activist movement, mm-hmm. of the act ups that these different sorts of clashing sensibilities where there there was you know crazy goofy joy uh, and comedy your gloves don't match your shoes <laughs> you'll see, see it on, on the, the news, news. Exactly. <laughs> we'd say to the police because <laughs> they were wearing rubber gloves exactly. because we had aids yeah. Yeah. there were things that were new but there were other things that we a lot of us were aware of like the the use of masks in the demonstrations and movements in Argentina and in Chile around the the desparecidos, um, the uh, the the political funerals in South Africa, which were um, very powerful, have had that um, had an impact, a direct impact because. Uh, especially in New York, people, New York and D.C., people organized these political funerals with the remains of folks who would say things like, uh, when I die, I want my ashes thrown on the White House lawn. Um, but those are, those are some very visual and political examples of the way that... Um, performance and props and uh, graphic language um, stood in for struggles against genocide and against um, political repression. So I, there are probably other examples too. Well, the one the one example that I would raise, which I think is really important, is um, I think uh, the research and the teachings and the level of, you know, so teachings obviously had been used in the civil rights movement. They've been used in the war movement against the war in Vietnam. They've been mu- used all the way along. I think the, the feminist health movement was a really important, uh, I think a lot of particularly lesbians uh, who were involved in ACT UP had been involved in the feminist healthcare movement. So, you know, creating your own health clinics and, you know, self-exam and research into drugs and research into, so our bodies ourselves and the stuff that grew out of that, that kind of 
very um, uh, you know rigorous look uh, looking at the at the issues so that people in act up became experts in mm-hmm. treatment and in uh, looking at data and in teaching each other how to understand right and I think so I think the feminist health care movement was a really big uh, Um, the the Stonewall uprising and the organizing that followed the gay liberation front was a moment of hope and power at least you know we see that symbol right of of that work how did the AIDS epidemic change how you understand organizing for liberation I told Manny when I came in today that um, this is a great question because nobody asks that question anymore. Um, and that really the right has appropriated uh, the idea of freedom as a overarching um, slogan or concept. And I think in ACT UP, while many of us came out of a left political background and maintained a perspective, the focus was so on the immediate um, and it's true, eventually, ideas about national health insurance were raised, but um, we were so focused on immediate issues, and they were certainly informed by a larger perspective. But I don't know if my thinking changed at all about how to fight for liberation. I, it did, in terms of organizing, I do think um, I'd never seen before the sort of what we now call intersectional organizing before, and that had a big impact on me. Um, And I see that as essential um, going forward in any organizing work. But this larger theme of liberation or freedom, uh, I feel like we were too grounded in the the immediate to sort of think about something as grand as that. What's the relationship um, between ACT UP and other organizing campaigns that were happening during the late 1980s, 1990s, you know, campaigns like Political Prisoners, Central America, Reproductive Rights? Well, I think many, you know, some of the people in ACT UP were already involved in those organizations and maintained that. Um, I was new to Chicago when I joined ACT UP, but I was struck by, you know, a meeting might conclude with announcements of uh CISPIS is doing an action in the Federal Plaza this Tuesday, and you can do clinic defense next Saturday. And people are going to these things. Um, I may be, I'm in less position to talk than, than you two, but my impression was, you know, back in Minneapolis, I was part of these other movements. Yeah, exactly. So people who are doing the AIDS activism were all, already doing that work. Um, I think maybe there were some disappointments that we didn't always get the same level of support back. Um, I think there was some disappointment about that, that the left was slow to come to support. But, uh, but I remember, because we, I remember ACT UP got involved in the, in the Burge stuff, uh, in some of the protests that were happening around John Burge. Mm-hmm. But, but the, I think you're right. I think if different people were involved in different things. I do think that some of us, some of us both locally and nationally were working very, very, very hard on um, connecting with people in prison who were doing HIV and AIDS, organizing in prison and education, uh, uh, organizing in education. So some of us were very involved in, um, you know, campaigns around uh, uh, getting materials and getting the stuff that those folks needed, but also some of those folks were political prisoners, um, and we were organizing and trying to encourage folks in ACT UP to be involved in some of the campaigns around the political prisoners. 
think there were, there was a really interesting uh, dialectic between the work that uh, some of the prisoners, particularly women, but not only, um, who were in prison, political people, were doing because they, like us, were confronted with the HIV-AIDS epidemic and how that manifested with, uh, you know, e- even more, it may be more immediately uh, horrifying ways in terms of how fellow prisoners were uh, getting sick and not getting treated and not having access to any education, et cetera. So they actually, I mean, uh, some of them talk about, I mean, Judy Clark talks about what we learned, you know, referring to the AIDS counseling and education program that she and others started at Bedford Hills Prison in New York, the maximum security prison in New York. She refers to learning from ACT UP, you know, and not just learning how to do, you know, pathways to do those research and so on, but just uh, that there was a, a kind of reciprocal relationship because as AIDS, as the AIDS epidemic wore on or raged on, it actually is probably more appropriate to describe it that way. But as we were getting more worn out, we took incredible inspiration and leadership from the work that these prisoners were doing. Um, so it's, it's interesting that one of the last kinds of, uh, you know, activist campaigns that ACT UP Chicago was involved in was the AIDS in prison work. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. I, I'm not sure how true uh, that is in other places that might have had a particularity here, mm-hmm. partly because of, you know, subjective relationships between some people in ACT UP and some of the prisoners. Jeff, you talked a little bit about the emotional kind of connection that came, that you were introduced to through this work, right? That you were introduced to to this work through this emotional connection. Mm -hmm. And you've been talking, Mary, a little bit about like the urgency of the time, right? And um, people are dying. People don't have access to what they need. And there's sort of an emergency and also a loss, right? People are dying and there's even like people's real ashes are being used as a way to like demand uh, changes and um, for things to happen. So I just want to know how did you both deal with the complex and intense intense emotional experience of uh, organizing around illness and death as part of ACT UP? That's very unevenly. You know, yeah. It's very difficult. I think a lot of it was not dealing with it um, and direct trying to, you know, directing it into continuing anger right. as a driving right. force. And hence, even the political funerals were angry actions. Right. Um, and so it wasn't so much about grieving, turn your grief was, into yes. anger as if, you know, which does not uh, allow time no. for the necessary process of grieving, which Douglas Crimp, who we just lost, um, right. This summer wrote wrote beautifully about that problem. You know that there there has to be mourning and militancy. You can't skip yeah, over. And it. I just don't think there but was. We were so desperate, and it did room. feel so urgent. So yeah. you know, we were because we were these. A lot of this was happening before there were aid service organizations, right? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, Jean, you remember when we used to do a shift and take care of Ortez and uh, he was so sick. And we, you know, we had no training and we needed to wash him and, you know, move him. And everything we did, I remember feeling every, every touch was produced pain for him because we, he, he, a language was a, a, you know, spoken language was a, a problem. He was so sick at that point. But, you know, I think we didn't, um, even though we sort of had some idea about self-care, care of the self, we didn't really practice no. it. We didn't know how to. You know, that uh, the kinds of complex understandings that we have now about who takes care of the caretakers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, because we're trying to fulfill all these roles. Which I think it's amazing and good and necessary that we did. Um, and it's very hard to translate, like, how would we do that differently now? I have no idea. When you're in a very small space of time mm-hmm. in which all of these things are necessary to move on. You can't put aside planning for this action um, in order to take care of this person. You just, you know, you have to take care of the person and do the action. You just don't sleep. Both ACT UP and Stonewall have been canonized in LGBT movement history. Uh, what do you want people to know today that perhaps isn't often discussed or talked about? Well, I can think of a couple things. Yeah. I mean, number one, I think it's important to talk about being part of an organization. So you see these events happening, like we just said, the April Actions for Healthcare. Uh, you could show up and it was spectacular and it took a year to make that happen. And so being part of an organization where people with different skills or inclinations come together and work together on a project, um, being part of an organization is crucial. Yes, Stonewall was this spontaneous event, but it was part of a world of what I guess eventually emerged into gay liberation or radical lesbians. And these are organizations that carry out work. And so I think the importance of organization and I think the importance of actually a relatively few number of people making a huge difference because Chicago, I mean, the membership was fluid, but it was basically a tiny group of people. Um, it didn't, didn't feel tiny, but I think I, I the yeah. first meeting I went to might have had 30, 40 people there. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe after the April actions, which were huge, we got 60, 70 people. Um, but for the most part, it was like 30, 40 people, and it fluctuated people in and out at different times. But um, that's probably true of most ACT UP chapters, and we had a huge impact. You know, so many, so many people have articulated, um, you know, phrases like AIDS is not over. So Visual AIDS in, in New York, which is a great organization, uses just the language of not over um, all the time in their work. And Greg Borderwitz says the AIDS crisis is still beginning which is a really if interesting formulation when you think about it. It's it's a little bit different from AIDS is not over. But um, I don't know. I, I think that uh, sometimes people take lessons from chapters like this and say, well, we really now need to learn to take care of ourselves. 
better. And sometimes I think that is a way to not, uh, to sort of discourage the sorts of risks we took and to get into kind of the messiness of life where you're actually not able to take care of yourself and where you're making mistakes. But that's what I would encourage, try to encourage myself and other people to, you know, be willing to do that. And if you're imagining, you know, a different reality, I mean, that has to be imagined. That has, that there's no map for it yet. And we need that desperately now when we, you know, get, uh, beaten down by all this data and all this horribleness, right? Mm -hmm. So that anything that creates a space to imagine possibilities differently and to take risks, to be wrong, right? You know, and to be, be confronted by other people and, and um, you know, take account of historic stuff that means we're all responsible actually for everything that's happened in this country. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queering Left. The organizers interviewed represent just one example of the fearless movement building in Chicago that Crossroads Fund is proud to have supported since 1981. Please visit our website for photos, videos, and other media related to this episode. For more information on Crossroads Fund and the organizers featured in this interview, Please follow Queering Left on Facebook and Twitter and sign up to receive email alerts of new interviews at our website, crossroadsfun.org.